Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome back to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Today we're going to talk about the Farm Bill. And the Farm Bill, in case you're not familiar with it, is the primary ag and food policy tool for the federal government. It was originally created during the Great Depression to provide financial assistance to farmers who were struggling due to low prices and excessive supply. And so since 1933, farm bills have included titles including commodity programs, trade, rural development, conservation, ag research, and food and nutrition programs. So in December, the 2018 Farm Bill was passed, and now it's time for us to start understanding how this new Farm Bill is going to impact decision-making over the next couple of years. So today we have with us uh, Sam Custer. He's the Dark County Extension Educator, and Ben Brown with the Department of Agricultural, Environmental, and Developmental Economics. So you guys have put together this wonderful Farm Bill Summit in Versailles, Ohio, and what were your goals with that? What was kind of the reasoning for doing this? Well, thanks uh, Amanda and Elizabeth for allowing us to be part of your program today. Uh, Back in 2014, we held a 2014 Farm Bill Summit, and we were excited to be able to share back then uh, that Farm Bill at that point in time. And there were a lot of changes with Art County, PLC, and some of the other programs. So uh, when the 18 Farm Bill was signed by the President in December, uh, Dudley Lips from Farm Credit Mid-America and myself uh, reached out to Ben to talk about can we do another one of these programs here in Western Ohio. And uh, ultimately, uh, my goal for the program is to make available um, high um, influence economists from the county or from the country that can share with uh, our farmers, with our agribusiness people, with our leaders, uh, their latest interpretations of the Farm Bill uh, to bit make that available to growers. So that was our my ultimate goal. Ben, what were your thoughts? Yeah, so when Sam and Dudley reached out, I thought it was a great idea. I wasn't here in 2014 when they did it the last time, but in kind of looking through the notes, uh, I can see why it was so popular at the time. And, you know, I, and we're hopeful that this is going to be another strong event. And, and we, we have faith and belief that it is going to be. And uh, probably my biggest goal for the, the meeting is mostly just, one, uh, making sure that edu- uh, the educators uh, at Ohio State, but then also producers within you know, the, the western part of the state, eastern part of Indiana, um, even parts of Kentucky, have the information to make the best decisions possible. But I think probably my ultimate goal is, is to showcase that Ohio State is a land-grant institution. It is the flagship institution of the state of Ohio, and that you know, we're here to, to partner with producers and agribusinesses uh, to, to be there for them to make the decisions they need and, and just really kind of kick off and, and reestablish um, even though in some cases it's it's established, but just kind of reinforce that principle that Ohio State is a partner in, in you know agriculture within this state. So, you've got guys have brought in some really big names um, from across the country. Why don't you introduce those folks a little bit? So uh, we're bringing back Jonathan Coppice. Jonathan was here uh, in 2014. Jonathan is at the University of Illinois works in policy there, and uh, he's a a local um, person from the county, so it's good to have him back. He has a 
um, a history as being an administrator at the FSA in Washington, D.C., so he'll be with us. Uh, and we're fortunate that uh, Ben was able to line up also Keith Coble out of Mississippi State and Patrick Westhoff out of the University of Missouri to present. Yeah, we had, uh, to be fully honest, sometimes you go after the best speakers hoping that you get one out of three, and we were lucky that all three said yes. And uh, we think we've got the best lineup we could possibly have, and especially in these in the topic areas of conservation, crop insurance, and commodity programs. All three of them have strengths in the respective areas, but they also you know, specialize in the respective commodity tiles that we're going to ask them to speak on. And, and I think we're just really fortunate to have this this high caliber of a lineup, but I also think that we probably have the best lineup we could have possibly gotten at this time. So That's really exciting, guys. I know it's a great program. And Ohio State's put in a lot of effort to get this done, but obviously it's not just Ohio State. Who are the other partners who made this event possible? Yeah, so we reached out um, to the University of Kentucky uh, and Purdue University, especially their, so for Kentucky, it was their Agriculture Economics Department. And for Purdue University, it was their Extension Department, but then also their Ag Econ Department and the Center for Commercial Agriculture, um, led by Jim Minner up there. And so we we were fortunate that they wanted to partner with us as well. Farm Credit Mid-America has been a partner from the get-go with Dudley and, and kicking this off. And they were a big partners in 2014 they are again this year but we're really excited to bring Purdue and Kentucky into the mix as well Um, and then on top of that we we reached out and almost all of our ag organizations within the state of Ohio are are helping us with this Ohio corn and wheat Ohio soybean the Ohio Agribusiness Association the Ohio Farm Service Agency uh, Ohio Farm Bureau and I'm sure I'm missing somebody the Ohio dairy producers and um, you know uh, Ohio Agnet and Country Journal and Ohio Pork and I think that might be all of them I don't know <laughs> hopefully I didn't miss anybody I might have to go back and look but um, we've been fortunate that all of them have been really receptive to this and that they've just really embraced it and and helped us you know get the word out Ohio Country Journal and Ohio Agnet is going to help us live stream the event so for those okay. people that cannot make it um, as of just as you know, as we try to take this outside the the bounds of Dark County to service the whole state of Ohio, one of the things that we realized was that for some some producers, especially in like Northeast Ohio, where where small dairy farms are prevalent and small and large scale dairies are prevalent, um, we realized that they probably weren't going to be able to drive all the way to Dark County. Um, and to take part of the program. So one of our goals was to make sure it was accessible to them, and Ohio Agnet um, is providing us with that link to make it more accessible to people um, from further distances away. So So for folks who missed out on the event, is there a recording available they can watch now? Yes. Uh, so thanks to our friends at Ohio's Country Journal and Ohio Agnet, um, they recorded the event for us. Um, it'll be located on our website um, within the Agriculture Economics Department. It'll be on Ohio Extension's website, um, but then it'll also uh, be on Farm Credits. Uh, you know, Farm Credit will have access to it, and, and Purdue University will have access to it as well. So, um, you know, we, we hope that people get good use out of it and learn something from it, and uh, we just 
you know, again, this was a, this was kind of something we tried different this year to make the event more accessible to people that couldn't physically make it all the way home. So my family in Missouri is watching it as well. <laughs> Excellent. We'll include the links for those recordings in the description. Yeah, for sure. And Sam, you're working with the Versailles schools here and the FFA kids are helping out too. Right. It's, it's uh, really good to partner with uh, the future leaders of agriculture. So uh, we're back at Versailles schools again. They have the largest cafeteria in our county so uh, we, th- we think we can squeeze 600 people in uh, to that facility so they were uh, a great tool uh, for us and great partners uh, great to work with the FFA uh, students to ag students to be able to set up the facilities for tear down we did provide marinated pork loin sandwiches uh, and the students helped serve all those so yeah for sale school is just a, a great organization to work with and probably one of the nicest high schools I've ever been in. <laughs> it yeah, is a nice just, it's a nice facility, and they've got a lot of really good things happening in Versailles. Very cool. So, when we talk about understanding and helping our growers, farmers, maybe listening to this today, understand this new farm bill, what are the resources that Extension is planning to provide? Well, just like in 2014, uh, if you recall back five years ago, in 2014, Extension educators from across the state uh, worked uh, in partnership with local FSA offices and provided uh, educational uh, opportunities in each one of the counties to share the latest uh, changes in the Farm Bill and things that they needed to consider as they made those decisions. And specifically, we talked about Arc County, uh, PLC was some of the biggest part of that conversation and uh, educators from across the state had went through uh, professional development to prepare for that uh, programming uh, to be able to share that information so that growers could make uh, educated decisions for the, for their own goods. So just like in 14, um, we will be doing that again and Ben can explain more as he uh, was the mm-hmm. author of a grant to do that. Yeah, so you know, our, our goal is to make sure that everybody in the state um, has access to information that can help them make a, the decision. Um, so one of the ways that we were trying to do this was through the Farm Bill Summit and the online videos and the, the material that's been put out from that. Um, but then we also want to do individual county meetings, help bring some of that information a little closer to home um, potentially and, and have people have access to it in, in ways. And so our, our ultimate goal is that we can do a Farm Bill county meeting in every in, in every county across the state, all 88. Um, some counties, uh, there's more producers, and so we'll likely need to do multiple meetings. Um, some, you know, we might only do one, but our goal is that we have that footprint across the state. And it does take some funds to do this. So we were successful in applying for and receiving a grant that'll help us, you know, pay for travel costs of, of presenters and stuff to get that information out around the state. And, and uh, you know, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a pretty tight window. Um, as of now, we don't necessarily know what the enrollment date's going to be uh, for these different programs. Um, but I, I think we're going to be, you know, trying to get um, information in terms of dates, but also choice information out uh, roughly at about the same time. And so, you know, we're going to have to continue to build and work rel- um, with producers to make sure that they're aware of the changes and the and the quick pace of the changing environment within farm policy, um, just to make sure everybody's on the same page and everybody's making the best decision that ultimately leads to more profitable farms um, and and farm sustainability in the long run. Yeah, I think it's going to be really important to get to those meetings because 
things have changed a lot since 2014 and when we were making those decisions ARC was definitely the obvious choice for most of our producers with this farm bill and the environment we're in it's a lot more of a toss-up a lot more thought is going to have to go into that decision so those meetings I think will be critical for helping. Yeah one of the things that we don't necessarily know as of yet um, there's there were some changes Uh, a lot of the programs remain the same or the same options I guess are still available to producers is what I meant to say Um, but there were some changes in the mix Um, you know we're right now um, there's always two phases to every farm bill Um, there's the actual passage of the bill and, and getting it through Congress or getting a bill that you know the president will sign or that he'll veto and Congress will pass that happened in 2008 when President Bush vetoed the bill and then Congress overrode the the veto and um, so I mean that's the first phase is just getting it through the process the second phase is the implementation stage Um, obviously Congress just writes the bill and then it's left up to the USDA agencies or the Department of Ag agencies to to actually interpret what that bill says and how they're going to use the funds um, to meet you know the text of the bill right and so that's kind of where we're at right now and and there's in every bill there's always a lot of wordage that you know that says left up to the secretary or his designee um, that happens uh, quite frequently, and so we're left to kind of make assumptions based on what we think and what historic history would tell us uh, those changes will be. But we are waiting for a couple of those tweaks within the Arc County and PLC formulas that'll kind of help tease out uh, where we see enrollment and producer decision being. Uh, but until then, we're you know we're kind of left just talking about here's the options that are available, here's where we see you know potential you know formulas ending up but we actually we won't know until official rules are are released by the farm service agency out of dc so so we had almost it seemed like a complete overhaul back in 2014 a lot of changes we've seen some changes not quite as extensive but like elizabeth mentioned we're in a completely different economic climate as well why don't we talk about the things that did change? Um, start with the titles you mentioned earlier um, when we were talking before we started recording about trade having some money put towards it more than in past years. Yeah, so I think before diving into the individual titles, I think it's helpful to understand how bills are scored. Um, so, you know, the there's lots of unknowns, there's always unknowns. Um, in today's climate with our trade uh, negotiations and and even really just our economy there's probably a few more unknowns than than usual right Um, and so what happens is Congress lays out the Congressional Budget Office lays out a 10-year budget Um, and this is based on you know current policies um, you know the way they see the country evolving in terms of economic rates of growth um, and that sets the baseline that's what we call a baseline and then what they do is they take the policy that was given and they they add it on top of the baseline and that that budget either moves up for a positive gain or it moves down for a negative gain or another way to say it is if it moves up the bill is going to spend more money than the old policy was going to spend if it goes down it's going to spend less than what the old policies were going to spend and so that's kind of how it starts off and they do this so we can compare bills apples to apples instead of apples to oranges right and this bill um, you know is about a 70 million dollar difference now that might seem like a lot but out of an 865 billion dollar bill billion with a b right 70 million is less than you know one percent and so we consider that budget neutral congress <laughs> is considering this bill budget neutral but i don't want to i don't want the illusion to be that there weren't changes within the bill we saw some major changes within the titles trade being the one it's important to understand that 
you know, trade, their trade title of the farm bill does not take into account the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the North America Free Trade Agreement or the newly, you know, negotiated United States, Mexico, Canada Free Trade Agreement. Um, but what the, the trade title actually does is it allows partnerships with, with trade organizations and agri or agriculture organizations like the Grains Council or the Soybean Export Council to actually have offices overseas. Uh, to where they can, you know, partner together and help promote U.S. products. That's that's ultimately what we're talking about within the trade title. But again, um, Congress just sets the law, right? They write the law. They don't actually implement it. Um, and I think there is some concern. I think they're hearing from their legislators, or they heard from their legislators back home that there was concern um, that you know these trade agreements were negatively affecting farming community. Um, the hope is that eventually somewhere down the road we'll see start to see the rewards of that, reap the benefits. Um, but right now there is some pressures due to the, the trade uh, renegotiations. And so I think this was Congress's way to you know put some money to help bluster um, international marketing, if you will, of US ag products. And so we saw a big increase. Um, probably one of the biggest increases in the trade title we've ever seen. Um, the other title that got a really nice bump was the miscellaneous title. Before we move on, um, so has anything like that really been pushed before this international marketing strategy? It's been growing. Um, it, it has. And one of the challenges is that people often debate is, you know, what should be the role of government? And uh, some some legislators will advocate that you know the role of government isn't to go and, and advertise for U.S. products overseas. Um, some would say that yes, this is this is helping build our growth and our market share around the world. Um, the nice thing about the trade title of the Farm Bill is it does it partners with. Um, trade organizations like, as I mentioned, the U.S. Grains Council, the Soybean Export Council, or the you know the Dairy Export Council, you know those groups um, to hold offices and have staff overseas. Um, another quick terminology, and I think something that's good to understand is farm bills only authorize spending. Every year, um, Congress has to go in and pass an appropriations bill um, that actually then allows the money to be spent. The Farm Bill just authorizes it, and then the appropriators come in and appropriate the money. The other thing that happens within a Farm Bill is there's mandatory spending, meaning money that has to be spent, and then spending that's you know authorized, but it could be appropriated in other things. The trade title has always been just other spending, right? It has been money that's been authorized for, for trade, but it has not been earmarked for a specific purpose. This Farm Bill went in and almost made all of the trade title mandatory spending, meaning that it has to be spent for certain marketing programs overseas. Um, it has to be used to develop those market shares. And so I think that was, again, I think it was Congress um, and their, their knowledge about, you know, international markets are important for our farm community. Um, International markets are important for our commodity prices here in the United States, and so I think they were willing to support that. And uh, so, yes, they've all, they've been a part of it for a while, and we've seen you know different support levels um, throughout history. But I think this one really solidified the importance of international markets for our commodities here in the United States. Yeah, that's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out and if it has an effect for sure. Mm -hmm. The other big title, and I just want to go really quick, the other big title that received a lot of attention was the miscellaneous title. Um, the miscellaneous title had the largest increase of spending of all the 12 titles. Um, this is not something that's maybe surprising to people um, because we're, we're getting a more diverse Congress all the time, more 
more people coming without an ag background, um, but they have interest in something that could be related to agriculture or related to food processing, right? They have interest in, in areas of conservation, but they might not directly come from production agriculture. And that's just in relation to ag, but Congress is becoming more, you know, more diverse all the time in terms of their interest. And so um, to get these big spending bills through Congress, you've got to find a way to relate to each individual that's going to be voting, right? You've got to build these coalitions. And, and in, an ag, um, in an ag industry where we have you know, 2% of the population involved in agriculture and we only have 34 of the 435 congressional districts that are considered rural, right? We have to be creative in how we strategically align ourselves with people to make sure we can get enough votes to pass the things that are important for our rural our rural economy. So the miscellaneous title serves as kind of like the catch-all of everything that can't fit in the other titles, right? Um, and it, it's become larger and it's becoming more like an ominous spending bill, right? We're going to throw some stuff in that all kind of relates together to help get votes. Now some people would advocate that that's not smart policy, right? That you know we're going to throw things that don't really matter. But I would, I, I would argue that this year's miscellaneous title um, actually address some very critical issues um, that we've maybe been lacking. The big one being um, related to the Animal Disease Preparedness Bank and our vaccine authority. So basically, it helps prevent against a biosecurity attack against our, our livestock, right? So right now we're seeing African swine fever wipe out a huge chunk of the herd in, in, East, in East Asia. And the fear is we don't want that to come to the United States, the fear of the economic damage it do here in the United States. And so um, the attention to add you know, disease preparedness program, but then also a vaccine bank to help fight if we do have an outbreak, we have enough vaccines um, to counter an attack. I think that's really important. The other thing that's included um, in the miscellaneous title is provisions for young farmers and ranchers. Um, there is growing interest in finding ways and ideas to help young producers stay in agriculture or even get into agriculture. And so we saw provisions there to help with that. And then we also saw some other provisions related to livestock. We saw the wool, or wool program. So just like we have corn and soybean commodity programs in, in Title I of the Farm Bill, um, there wasn't one for wool. Um, and so they created a program for wool, and it's housed in the miscellaneous title as well. There's some other things in there, like, you know, we can't eat dogs as, as meat and, and stuff. And so, I mean, there's some things in there that might seem a little odd, right? But there was somebody in Congress that said, I'm willing to vote for this bill if this is included. And that's where it was in, that was where it was in captured. So. Okay. That's very interesting. Ben, remind me. <laughs> what was the actual vote coming out of Senate and House, or not ballpark figure? Because yeah. it was like unbelievable. Was, yeah, majority. for the partisan nature that we think of Congress right now, right? I, I bet if you asked, you know, twenty people on the street, you know, nineteen of them would say that, you know, we have a very partisan meaning that. You know, no one supports the other side in votes. The Farm Bill was a very bipartisan vote. It was a very unified, collaborative vote. Um, and it, together, you know, the Senate passed the bill 87 to 13. The House passed it 369 to 47. Um, if you add those yes votes together, that's the largest voting margin in favor of one Farm Bill in the history of farm policy. And so not only are we seeing you know, an interest in these different titles, um, but there was large bipartisan support to move this bill through, um, which it went through a rocky period. Let's not, let's not forget that you know, the House failed a bill um, earlier last fall, um, largely over a partisan debate. Um, but we ended up getting a bill that was able to be attractive to a lot of legislators and move through. So good question, Sam. Thanks for asking. So let's move on and talk about 
um, crop insurance. There's been a little bit of confusion, I think, on that end, and what's changed there? Yeah, so a couple of things um, real quick, and I'll ask Sam to pipe in as well, but you know, the, the crop insurance title um, authorizes a lot of, a lot of programs um, that are able to, to be used for risk protection, production risk protection. Um, but the, the interesting thing always in the crop insurance title is we get a great sense of where legislators want to see risk management in the future. And, uh, you know, this time we see, you know, research projects to help look for products to help with grain sorghum. We see with uh, products to help with hemp, and we see you know better uh, you know risk management in terms of the loss ratios of different commodities uh, and and how often they trigger crop insurance payments. So some diversification. Yeah, um, and so I mean this is this is related to the the products themselves that are offered you know through risk management providers and the risk management agency. Um, and so it's, it's always interesting to read through the crop insurance title and, and kind of get a feel a little bit of where producers want to see some risk management in the future. Um, obviously, the crop insurance program um, helps oversee and helps fund the, the crop insurance title. Now, crop insurance is a permanently authorized program, meaning that you know, it is authorized outside the farm bill and money is always flowing to it. Um, but we get, a, we get a better sense in the title of what could be coming down the line and new products to come. And I always think that's really exciting. Um, in 2014, we had a couple new products that were maybe a little bit foreign to some people, but um, it allowed for some county-based revenue coverage that we hadn't had before. Um, now, we've had county revenue products in the past, um, but these were a little bit you know, more specific, and I think in a large scale, they worked a little bit better than those old revenue plans. And we also had a thing called supplemental coverage option, um, which I can ask Sam to talk about as well, but basically it allows the difference between what a producer picks in terms of an individual coverage. So you can go all the way up to 86% um, coverage of your farm. Now revenue rem reminder is price times quantity. So you're insuring against a certain quantity and a an an certain price. Um, and then you can insure all the way up to 86% of that from an individual level. Now individuals are always more variable meaning the volatility mm -hmm. and the difference between individuals in a county is very different from the county. Um, the county is always a little bit more level, and so county-based revenue projects don't trigger a lot, um, but they offer this difference. So if I, as a producer, came in and bought a 70% individual revenue coverage, then I could buy this supplemental coverage option, which is a county-based revenue, so it doesn't trigger as frequently, for 16%. And so in theory, I'm helping get up to my 86% coverage um, at a cheaper cost. And uh, you know that was that was something new. And, and Sam, I don't. Do you want to add stuff to it? Yeah, I would say you know from what we've heard here in uh, early 2019 during the first quarter, there's been a lot of conversation about uh, the SCO because uh, now for a grower to be able to be eligible to purchase SCO, they'll have to pick PLC. That's my understanding, mm -hmm. Ben. So. Uh, here we are, we're telling people as you make your crop insurance decisions that you'll, to, in order to get the SCO, that down the road you're going to have to pick PLC, but we're not in the position, we don't know all the details and rules and, and prices and so forth to be able to make a good decision on PLC uh, versus ARC. So that's been quite the conversation out here, you know, where we're at. Uh, we know that crop insurance salespeople have been trying to. Mm -hmm. um, 
make good decisions with uh, their people they're working with, but uh, unknowns, kind of unusual as we look at all these commodity programs. Our growers and dairy people will have a lot of the year, especially like for dairy, they'll have six months of experience before they make a decision probably. Yeah, it's a, so um, it's important to know, so the, the, the 2014 Farm Bill ends with the 2018 marketing year for corn and soybeans. And so um, for corn and soybeans, that goes from September 1st of 2018 all the way through August 31st of 2019. Um, so the payment or potential payments that could be triggered this fall are still associated with the previous Farm Bill and associated with that 2018 crop. The decisions that will be made for the 2019 crop, or the crop that's going to go in the ground this summer, um, you know, those will be in this new farm bill, and the new decisions they'll have to make. And so, that, to kind of just re, you know, state Sam's point and, and kind of drive home, um, you know, if you're making a crop insurance choice for 2019 and you're making your commodity choices for 2019. You know, in a perfect world, you get to make your commodity choice first, and then you'd follow up with your crop insurance choice. That's not happening this way. It's exactly the opposite way around. It's causing a little bit of confusion. Um, there's likely to be, you know, some people that you know want to enroll in a certain commodity program down the road, but can't because they're limited on their their PLC, or vice versa. They they realize, oh, I am going to go with PLC in my commodity program. I could have saved some money on PLC. And so we, we have that un uneasiness, at least right now, and I'm hoping in the future it gets, the time, timing gets a little better worked out, so. So talking about some of the other titles, some one area where there's been some more changes is in conservation and the priorities around what those dollars are gonna be targeted for. Do you wanna talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure can. Um, so conservation, again, we still see, you know, some of the same programs that we've we've always had within a conservation title. We see the Conservation Stewardship Program, we see the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, and we see CRP, uh, which is the set-aside, allowing farmers, the Conservation Reserve, to, to set aside a portion of land and not produce it to any commodity, and instead they get a payment. Um, we see the same programs offered, um, so not a whole you know revolutionary change, but maybe more of an evolutionary change in the conservation title. I think there is some interest, at least in Congress, um, to merge EQIP and the Conservation Stewardship Program together under the same budgeting authority, um, to where then you know their programs aren't overlapping and we're not offering multiple dollars for the same project. Um, We'll have to continue to monitor that. I, I, given some of the changes in this 2018 Farm Bill, you know, when we get around to doing this again in 2023, 2024, you know, I think we're going to see even more changes in the conservation title. I think this was kind of like the the preamble, if you will, um, to what could come down the road. I think they're all going to be positive to producers, and I think some of the same programs are going to be offered. I just, I think it's going to be, it's going to come down to to who's funding the different proposals and and what line item they fall under. Um, as far as the Conservation Reserve Program, you know, we had a cap at 29 million acres, that, or 24 million acres, sorry, not 29, 24, 24 uh, million acres. And, you know, we've kind of been right around that the last two, three years. The interesting thing is just like the commodity programs that we're going to get ready to talk about, the Conservation Reserve Program um, has not set their enrollment period. And right now the, the estimate is that the Conservation Reserve Program is going to have an enrollment period at the end of the year, maybe possibly even in 2020. 
And so we're looking at that going, okay, if producers have to wait till then to enroll some of this acreage, what happens to the land that's coming off CRP contracts right now, right? And so we're probably gonna have this little bit of a period um, where some people might wanna re-enroll their CRP programs this, in 2019, um, but they've ended their, their previous contract, their 10-year contract uh, under CRP, and so they can't re-enroll because the enrollment window hasn't opened yet. So it's likely to see us fall below that 24 million cap. Now the reason I bring this up is because Congress actually increased the cap. This was largely due to help with water quality issues and soil health. And so we saw an increase to 27 million acres. Now, in the policy world, um, I, I know how people sometimes think that Congress just makes money, um, but for ag policy, when a bill is as tight as what this was in terms of budget neutralness, remember we talked about budget neutral early, if you increase expenditures for one program, you've got to save money somewhere else in the bill. Now luckily most of the time it comes within the same title and so we're not taking money from one title and putting it in others. Um, but for the Conservation Reserve Program, one of the ways that they paid for that increase in acres from 24 to 27 million acres is they load, lowered the rental rate. So you used to could be able to get 100% of your county rental rate um, as a payment to set aside land in conservation. Now you're only going to get 85% of the county rental rate. So it's also likely that due to the, you know, the, the late start in conservation enrollment um, and also a lower rental rate, that we could see less acres involved in CRP going forward and that could save some dollars. So we'll have to watch and keep a hold of that. But not a huge change, not a lot of major changes in the conservation, re or in the conservation title, but a lot of little things that I think could um, help set up the states for the next time around. So. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about those new priorities around soil health and water quality because I think in Ohio that's going to give some opportunity to get funding for projects that maybe in the past were slightly outside of what the priority areas were for these programs. So maybe in the past if you've had a project that didn't get funded. There might be some chances now. Yeah. And, and so here in Ohio, you know, we have Lake Erie. You know, we, we're blessed with it. It's ours. I mean, no one else has it, right? And I, I don't say that to be tongue-in-cheek. I just say that to be like, you know, we, we're the only ones that get to, you know, to have it. We're blessed to have it, and, and we, we've got to manage it as well. And um, the rural or the regional partnership programs for different parts of the country fall under the conservation title, to which Lake Erie, Western Lake Erie Basin, is a regional partnership program. And so the increase in, expend, er, in dollars for you know, the conservation title, I think is going to bode well to that regional partnership in the West Lake Erie Basin. So. Well, the commodity program names didn't change necessarily, but we've hinted at it a little bit that there might be some decisions to make between ARC and PLC. Not entirely sure what's going to be best at this point. Um, why don't you touch on those? Yeah, so, you know, we do have that same option um, between the agriculture risk coverage, which is the revenue program, and the price loss coverage program, which is, um, you know, insures and protects against a low price. Part of the reason why we have these is a, is a fundamental disagreement over what it should be the role of government, right? We talked about this just a little bit earlier in the trade title, um, but we have repeatedly seen people ask, should, should the role of government be to transition from periods of high farm income to low farm income and help people make that adjustment? Or should it be to help farms sustain against 
longer periods and sustained periods of low farm incomes, right? So if you think about it, the agriculture risk coverage helped transition from periods of high farm income to low farm income. That's why it was so dominant during as a pick for producers, especially in corn and soybeans um, in, the, in the Midwest or in the heart of the country, because we were coming off those years of 2012 and 13 when incomes were really high and they were coming down, right? So we were having that transition. Um, the price loss coverage program helps sustain against periods, long periods of, of decreased farm income. And so that's why, you know, in this period where we're at right now, um, it might seem like the pick should go to PLC because we have suppressed prices and any increase we do have in terms of prices isn't going to trigger those ART County payments. The difference then, that probably what we're still waiting on, is there could be modifications to that ART County program or the Agriculture Risk Coverage Program that to help make it a little bit more attractive a little bit longer, right? So for, you know, during the next couple of years. And Congress did something that commodity groups have been advocating for a long time. They Commodity groups have, have advocated that producers should get to pick their commodity program each year um, to look at the, you know, to look at the economic conditions that are coming um, and make a pick each year. And so we see that this year, commodity or farmers are going to get to make a pick in 2019 for the 2019 and 2020 growing season. So a two-year pick up front, but then every year after that, an individual pick. And it, we're going to have to continue to train, and we're going to have to look at economic conditions as we continue to go forward. Um, I'm hopeful that we get some rules here pretty quick, and so we can start making some determinations about, you know, in which cases and which scenarios might this look better for more favorable. Um, but overall, again, we see the same programs offered and we'll continue to have to monitor and which one fits the best farm, you know, the risk management plan of an individual farm. Sam, do you have anything you want to add? I would just reiterate what Ben just shared in that in 2014, we talked about you make a decision, you got to live with that throughout the, the farm bill program. Uh, just to reiterate, this time we'll make a decision that will last for two years, so we'll make a decision PLC ARC for 2019-20, but we'll come back in 20 and make an annual decision. So it's not make a decision, put it in the filing cabinet, and forget about it. Uh, we'll need to make annual decisions on, on what directions we're going. Yeah. What about the, the whole, we can go back in and in 2020 and talk about yields at our FSA office, Ben. What, oh, what a, is that? That's a good thing, Sam. <laughs> I. I this has been something that we're starting to see more frequent um, as a yield update for the price loss coverage option. Uh, just like you know, in the agriculture risk coverage, if we go back and we, we increase the benchmark, right? So our historical revenues, um, it increases the chances that we're going to trigger a payment, right? Because we've increased that benchmark. Same thing happens with PLC. Is if we if we do choose PLC and we trigger a PLC program, um, farmers want to make sure they have the most accurate count of what they're actually producing and that comes from the yield estimate and so you know back in the 90s when we had the the fair act that served as the 96 farm bill um, we started talking about these base acre yields and we've had a couple of chances now to, to update those to to match you know take into account current production values and, and current yields um, we're going to get that again this time, but it's going to be delayed a year. And I think this was for budgetary issues. Um, 
And, and we'll have to see if, if producers can make their yield update and their PLC and ARC choice at the same time at their FSA office or if they'll actually have to go back in 2020. Because keep in mind, they won't have to make an ARC and PLC decision in 2020 because they made it in 19, right? But they could have to go back in 2020 and decide whether they want to increase those PLC yields or not. For some parts of the country, we have seen increases in yields, and so that increase will look attractive for producers. Again, a higher yield creates a higher payment. Um, other parts of the country haven't seen that strong of an increase in yield um, to, to qualify for a payment or a yield increase, but um, you know, we'll just have to keep looking at that and see what happens. But yeah, that could actually help influence the decision this year between ARC and PLC, um, and we're going to have to make sure producers understand that that yield update comes in the second year only, not the first year, um, and you have to be enrolled in PLC to, uh, to take into account for that. So. Well, um, for those who missed the Farm Bill Summit in person, uh, we will, again, a reminder, post the links to the recordings in the show notes so you can access that. Thank you guys so much for organizing the summit, for your work and um, understanding the Farm Bill. Just want to encourage producers to stay tuned for those meetings we'll have around the state, and hopefully we'll have more information on what programs are going to look like, what payments might be coming in future years. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.